friends, welcome back to another episode of A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander, I am your host. I only have a couple of announcements today. As always, if this show is helpful or resonant to you, you could do me a solid and head to iTunes and give us a five-star review or share it with somebody else that you think may be interested in the content. Further, if you want to work with me or engage more with my work, you can find all of that at rickalexander.com or in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, you can also find in the show notes of this episode a link to sign up for the Psychology of Cannabis workshop, which is coming up on August 24th. And now, without further ado, on to the show. So today we are going to talk about the soul in conflict. And it takes a very perceptible psychological eye, I would say, to become aware of this conflict and to start working with it in oneself. So really that's kind of the goal today is to start building some awareness around this conflict. Now part of what makes it so hard to see it is because we in the West are so used to considering ourselves to be individuals that even when we do wind up in conflict, we tend to take ownership over that conflict in some way. And so here's what I mean. You know, you can find all of the personal development, I don't know, habits, all of the methods and techniques for goal setting, right? All of the ways to get to what you want in life. But it's been my experience that most of the time, what actually we have to check in with are the parts of ourselves that would be perfectly happy not to get the goals that we consciously say that we want. And that's because rather than view ourselves as an individual, I tend to view the individual person as a multiplicity of personalities and desires and motivations. And at certain times we want this and we value this and at other times it's about that. And it can be the case that these different desires and motivations are actually opposed to each other, that they want different things. And this isn't uh, unique to my way of seeing the world. I'm building off of thinkers like Carl Jung and James Hillman, who we'll talk about a little bit today. And part of why that can be important is because when we go after a goal and we don't get it, it tends to be that we just beat ourselves up as if it were some kind of a moral failing. Or if we're trying to kick some habit and we can't do it, we'll beat ourselves up like it's like it's some a character flaw of some way. And you know, maybe it is. Maybe that is a way to go about it. It's certainly the most predominant way you're gonna find in our culture. But maybe you could turn the eye inward and start to understand these different inner figures and characters. And and maybe if you were able to do that, you could get a sense of the drama that's playing out in you. This is a lot of the work I do with coaching clients is we start to become aware of the inner drama that's taking place. And once we're aware, we can then participate in it in new ways rather than just beating ourselves up for this inner figure that has uncontrollable outbursts or desires or temptations that we that are much stronger than our conscious personality or ego, you could say. So that's one way of just opening this conversation. Now, the conflict that we're going to talk about today, particularly, is between the pagan and the Christian, or what we could say the monotheism and the polytheism that's in our culture. And that has always been in our culture. 
And if you want to see this kind of split in the individual person between the pagan and the Christian uh, exemplified or personified, there's a show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom. It's an incredible show. It gets much, I would say, better as far as production goes as the seasons go on because I think it started to get more popularity. But they do a really good job at highlighting what it's like to be torn between these two worldviews. And I think often we are torn between these worldviews, but we just don't have enough awareness to actually make the conflict conscious. So in order to start becoming aware of this conflict, I'm going to take us all the way back to October 28th and the year 312. Because on that day, Constantine, who would become the emperor of Rome, had a dream. That dream would echo through the heart of Western humanity for millennia to come. I'm going to make the case that it's still echoing through humanity. Now, the next day after this dream, he would march his men into battle and win a decided victory in a clash for the sole leadership of Rome. So what's happening back in 312 is we're at a point where Rome has become kind of fractured. And there are all of these different wannabe emperors that have different backings and, and have their own troops, and they're going to war for the sole leadership of Rome. Now, prior to this battle, Constantine, the former devotee of the sun god Sol Invictus, or Helios, so this is who Constantine worships, the sun god Helios, would have the symbol of the Christian god painted on the shield of his troops before marching them into a decided victory. So what happens is when Constantine on October 28th has a dream, he sees a cross burning in the sky or, or a cross of light, I think is how he describes it. And it bears the command, in this sign, you will conquer. So the next day, he has that sign painted on all of the shields of his troops and he marches them in, kills everybody that opposes him, and he, and he, this, he will go on to become the sole emperor of Rome. Now Christ, who was a lover in life, now had apparently become a fighter in death, for no longer was there an interest in turning the other cheek. So notice what happens in this moment. There's a very particular reason that I'm using this moment as the root metaphor for what we're talking about. Because this is the moment where Christianity, or, or the way, or whatever it is at this point, gets combined with empire. So now there's a desire for power right? And so no longer is there an interest in turning the other cheek. Very important for our perspective. Of course, that's a, I'm quoting or I'm kind of working with Matthew 5, 38 through 40 there. Now, like 1600, 1700 years later, Ralph Waldo Emerson reminds us that man is explicable by nothing less than all his history. And further, all the facts of history pre-exist in the mind as laws. So what we're doing with Emerson is we're moving toward a psychological view of history where facts are seen as the narrative of myth and myth is seen as the patterns by which we live. So rather than looking back at our history as, as facts, which is our sort of post-enlightenment view of history, what are the hard facts? What actually happened? As if we could know. As if there were 100 people and you asked 100 of them, you wouldn't get 100 different answers, right? Like, like we're, we've forgotten that what's actually happening is subjective and we've hardened it into a fact. I'm saying let's depart from that and let's look at it as metaphor. Now, in that same vein, James Hillman, the founder of archetypal psychology, one of them, he says, the figures of history taken psychologically 
are the progenitors, the cultural ancestors of the ideas in our minds. And he says that in his book, Revisioning, which of course I'll put in the show notes of this episode. So notice that we're now looking at history fully as psychology. Now, if, if we do that, Constantine's dream is not only the founding of Roman Catholicism in the factual sense, it also functions as the root metaphor for what Rafael Lopez Pedraza sees as the most urgent concern for the Western person, which is to differentiate between the monotheism and the polytheism in our Western psyche. So Lopez Pedraza is saying this is an urgent concern, that we actually have to be able to differentiate and understand how monotheism and polytheism show up in our psychology. This is something you probably won't find uh, talked about a lot in our world today because we are, so, we are so monotheistic in our outlook, in our external way of seeing the world. Now, I want to say a moment about Lopez Pedraza too. He wrote, a, he wrote a book, it's actually a collection of four essays called Cultural Anxiety. And he's kind of one of the founders of archetypal psychology too. And sometimes archetypal psychology is, called a, is known as a post-Jungian movement. Uh, because it kind of clashed with a lot of people who had, in my opinion, started to make Jung into a kind of dogma. Now, I don't really like the term post-Jungian personally at this point in my life, just because I think there's something about archetypal psychology that is very, that, it, that really honors the spirit of what Jung did and what he said and what he wrote about. And not only that, it actually comes out of Zurich. It actually comes out of the analytical tradition that Jung had started. So I don't, I don't love the idea of calling it a, a sort of post-Jungian movement. But in any case, this, this author who first points out that we have to differentiate between the monotheism and polytheism in our psyche, he comes out of this movement. Now, according to him, Rafael Lopez Pedraza, we in the West are predominantly monotheistic in the sense that the Bible has played a significant role in shaping our modes of thought and behavior. Thus, monotheism might be understood as the most dominant influence on modern consciousness. Now, we have to understand what, what we're talking about here because it's not necessarily that he's saying everybody in the West are believers. He's saying that their consciousness has been most influenced by the Bible and by the monotheistic way of looking at the world. Now, in order to get this point, we really have to think psychologically, and that can be difficult for a number of reasons, as I will say. There's something in the monotheism of our culture that really resists a psychological interpretation. But in any case, we're not saying necessarily that everybody in, the, in, the Western, in Western culture is Christian or Jewish. We're saying that the way in which we think has been most predominantly influenced by that. And because of that, you, know, you can often see people who they claim to be an atheist, for example, but they're still living the Christian myth. They still act as if there's a good for, for this is an example, they still act as if there's a good and when they go through bad things, those bad things are only happening to them in relationship to their ability to get to the good. Like that's a very Christian idea. Um, the rejection of the body it can be very Christian. And so we say things like mind over matter. We often treat ourselves as if there's only one way to be, right? That's a very monotheistic way to be. And so notice it doesn't matter whether we identify in this context with, with the actual religious disposition or not. 
this religion has been integral to forming the way that the Western person sees the world and rejecting the religion as an example does by no means actually gets rid of that. The myth is still living us. It takes a long time, I think, to really come to grips with the way that a mythology lives us and to make a conscious decision to do something different. He also says, though, that we're polytheistic in the sense that the mythological lineage most properly belonging to the West are the polytheistic books of the Greeks, right? So what he's saying is that actually what it means to be Western comes from the Greek lineage. And that lineage is pagan. It's polytheistic. And the Bible actually comes from the ancient Near East. Well, we'll get to this. But you can see that that, that actually is something that's been put into our lineage. And he wrote an essay called Cultural Anxiety. As I said, the book Cultural Anxiety are these four essays. The second one is actually called Cultural Anxiety, where he's trying to highlight and make conscious this conflict. And he does so by making a twofold claim. First, he says that this cultural conflict is felt most potently as a division within the individual person. He says it's as if there is an intimate inner taboo as if the conflict were afflicting our basic nature, right? Again, we don't have to be conscious of it for it to be a conflict within us. Now, the second thing he says is that the anxiety born of this conflict can manifest in our lives. And as a result, it will show back up in culture. At its best, this conflict reveals itself in a form of religious syncretism, a creative way forward. And I'm gonna talk much more about what religious syncretism is uh, as a kind of project. And at its worst, he says, it's going to manifest in anger, cruelty, and catastrophe. And he does a really good job, which I'm not going to talk about today, of showing how that this conflict was really at the heart of the Nazi movement, um, which, you know, the, the Holocaust is obviously a very complex issue, and there's a lot going on. A lot of commentators have written about it. Jung has an essay called Wotan, where he writes about this ancient Germanic god that gets sort of what reinvigorated and reenthuses the German people, and that was part of what happened with the Holocaust. So it's, it's just a way of, it's a lens. It's a way of looking at this and being like, oh, wow, this does show up in culture in these different ways. Now, what I want to do is I want to amplify this cultural complex by emphasizing the unique contribution that archetypal psychology has made, because in a lot of, t a lot of ways, archetypal psychology is a way of refinding the pagan in oneself. And quite honestly, there's not a lot of other people outside of the archetypal psychological movement that have created a good, well, I don't know, like a, a lot of framework and articulated the way that this conflict shows up. So this is what I'm going to rely on heavily. Now, I also am examining the image of Constantine's dream as the progenitor of this mythic conflict. Right? Because more of the conflict's complexities are going to be brought into consciousness if we can see it in light of this dream. Because this dream, as I'm, as I'm saying, is the moment that these two worldviews really started to clash in history. Now, I'm going to do this by examining ways of engaging with the conflict, by going where archetypal psychology itself has been so reluctant to go, which is even further east. And these are going to be all projects of religious syncretism, as I'm saying. And then I also want to look at where monotheism and polytheism do not find quite the opposition that they do in our Western heritage. Because I think that's important too. Just because in the West this has been a conflict 
doesn't mean that it was everywhere else, right? Like I'll get into Hinduism, for example. This is a place where polytheism is nested within the context of a monotheism and they don't see themselves at war in any way. But in our culture, on the back of Constantine's dream, these two things went to war. And the case I'm making is that that war is still taking place in our soul. Lopez Pedraza first opens up the cause of this cultural anxiety by making a nuanced argument that is often overlooked in our religious and cultural conversations. This is very important for this, for this argument. Most people take for granted the fact that the Abrahamic religions, right, Judaism and Christianity in particular, are part of the quote-unquote Western religious heritage, when in fact they originate in the ancient Near East. Though these religions won the struggle for power and dominance on a societal level, they're no less a foreign body to the Western psyche. Now this is significant because the Bible does not only bring with it a monotheism in general, it brings with it a kind of monotheism that is particularly intolerant of pagan nature. Even in ancient Greece, at least as far back as the pre-Socratics, such as we find with Anaximander and his concept of Hyperion, which I talked about in a previous podcast, we find a monotheism that had begun to organically develop. Now this organically developing monotheism was of the monistic variety, such as we find explicated in Plotinus', Plotinus Neoplatonism. So I don't know if you're familiar with Neoplatonism. For him, he looks at the monad, or what he called the one, and he kind of builds out this hierarchy where the one becomes the many through the divine mind, or what in Greek would be called the nous, and then the cosmic soul, which is the psyche, and then further into the cosmos itself. So he, he talks about this way that the one becomes the many. And in Neoplatonism, for example, again, they're not at war. So everywhere where we look, where a monotheism developed organically out of a polytheism, they're not at war, which I think is something very interesting to notice. Now, I'll, I'll talk about Neoplatonism in further shows, but just as an aside, that hierarchy where the one becomes the many, it's not linear. It's actually all taking place at once at all times right now. So the one is actually present in and through the many. So here we find that the differentiation of the world and all its gods simultaneously contain the whole in every part, as I was saying. Now it's a circular system whereby the one and the many exist in a symbiotic relationship. They get along. They actually need each other. Now theoretically, a monotheism of this sort does not impinge on the pagans' recognition of multiplicity. Jeanette Paris, who wrote a, a great book called Pagan Meditations, points out that in a polytheistic religion, each archetype, or what we could say each god, is one of the possible paths towards spirituality, and so each has its own perfection. Right? They're not intolerant, the gods aren't intolerant of the other gods, and in fact, they are their own path to the one. Now, in Neoplatonism, this perfection issues from the one, which is not opposed to, but is present in and through each archetype, or God, whatever language we want to use. Perhaps we see here why the pre-Socratics and the Neoplatonists play such an integral role in archetypal psychology's lineage, for they each strive toward a philosophy that did not see the many and the one as fundamentally opposed to each other. If we are to take this internal conflict as valid and strive to honor both aspects of ourselves, 
perhaps contemplating systems like monism and emanationism can play a role in bridging the divide. But that's not what we get in the Bible, right? So nevertheless, the Bible posits the doctrine of what's called creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. The creator is not only the one, but he's on a kind of jealous tirade, and I use that word particularly because it's been translated as jealous, to become the only, like check Exodus 20-5, for example. Now, further, this God, Yahweh of the Bible, is completely independent of created life and in need of nothing from humans. So they can either fall in line recognizing him as the only, or they can suffer the devastation of coming up against a force that is overwhelmingly more powerful than themselves. Might I suggest that this too is reflective of how the divergent parts of oneself feel when coming up against the tyrannical and overwhelming force of egocentrism and its accepted doctrines. Whereas in Greece, the movement from the many to the one developed somewhat harmoniously, the pagan world of the ancient Hebrews met the anger of the prophets and the wrath of their god. Here, Asherah, Anath, Estarte, Ashima, these are ancient Hebrew goddesses, were deemed a heresy, and they were pushed outside of the temple walls, and their worship was forbidden. Now, notice, so this is what's important, that in the, the particular kind of monotheism we get in the Bible is intolerant of all other gods. That's something we have to know. Because what I suggest is that the monotheistic part of ourselves is intolerant of the multiplicity in ourselves. And the multiplicity is increasingly anxious about that fact. So I sense that this struggle for the temple, for what can and cannot be deemed holy and thus worthy of reverence, sits at the bottom of this cultural complex. For today, we in the West are always coming up against areas of life, sensuality, same-sex partnerships, intoxication, for which there is no longer a divine model. Everything that falls outside of the purview of the one is deemed unholy, pushed out of the temple, and as a result, we struggle to relate to these parts of ourselves and our culture. So this is something that we lost when the, when the monotheistic worldview dominates the pagan worldview. See, we had Dionysus, and we had Mercurius, not Mercurius, that's what the alchemists call him. We had Hermes. So we have all of these different gods, these different archetypes, if we want to use psychological language, that teach us how to engage in things, like I said, sensuality, same-sex partnerships, intoxication, and doesn't consider them unholy, it teaches you how to engage, it gives you a divine model for working with them. But when, when the entire pantheon, let's say, is collapsed into a single god, a single PowerPoint, then everything that falls outside of that, well, gets pushed into the devil. And the devil is a kind of combination of, of a whole bunch of sort of pagan Greek gods. The problem is that then we don't have a way of relating to those parts of ourselves. So when Rome would later convert to Catholicism on the back of Constantine's dream, the reaction kind of varied. Like in Rome itself, for example, uh, temples to the pagan deities were often converted to museums and allowed to exist so long as taxes were paid to the state. Right? Like you can like have your gods just pay us money and you can't actually recognize them as gods, but we will take your money. In the eastern province of the empire, however, 
it became a badge of honor to desecrate a pagan temple by destroying it or turning it into a church for the Christian god. Now, by AD 435, Theodosius II issued an edict requiring the destruction of any pagan temples and shrines still intact and the purification of their sites by the setting up of a cross. And remember, we, we need to keep thinking about these psychologically. Because I think what this does is it gives us an, helps us understand some of the anxiety that issues from the Christian side of our, con, of our, of our own conflict. Right? There's always a worry. Under the clinging to certainty, to individuality, and purity, that the animistic spirits underneath will rise in a fit of fury or madness, and thus one must always be on the lookout for the works of the devil, who now carries the totality of the rejected pantheon. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So note, the Christian solution to such a dilemma is to reinforce one's commitment to rational and puritanical values, as if that were sufficient to keep the wild spirits that lurk below permanently suppressed. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that there's also anxiety on the Christian side, right? We cling to certainty and we cling to this idea of an individual. And then what happens is the, the wild spirits that have been repressed, that are in us, they rise up. Right? Something in us doesn't give a shit that we're trying to kick that habit, doesn't care that we, that we have a goal and that, we, that that goal makes us virtuous and it rises up. So the Christian answer to that is be sober, be alert, notice it, that enemy is everywhere. And it, what I would suggest is that creates a kind of anxiety where it's like the thing that could bring you down is always underneath. And we get a kind of fear of the unconscious, so to speak. This is how this shows up psychologically. And you can show it and you can see it in analysis too. Like, you know, sometimes you'll notice it. I notice it in clients, but to be honest, I've noticed it in myself as well. It's like, you know, you get going down the analytical path where you're constantly analyzing. Like for me, analysis is a kind of weekly thing. And then you start to get a little bit nervous of like, what's going to come out of me? Like what, you know, I, you realize when you're starting to follow the soul that it's not really about you anymore. And that doesn't mean that you don't get to be part of something much greater because that is actually what you get out of it. But there starts to become a kind of fear of like people are, are really terrified of who they might actually be, of the wider personality. And we can really suffer in a neurotic kind of way here when the soul wants to come forward and we're too scared to let it. Catholicism and its universality, as the name suggests, Catholic means universal, demands a single point of worship for everybody. Now, James Hillman articulates this with an old saying by Gregory of Nazianus, we take prisoner every thought for Christ. So that's a kind of old church father thought. But if we are to read this precedent as pre-existent laws of the mind in the vein of Emerson, that is, as psychology, we see that those of us who have been conditioned by Western ways of thinking may have a natural predilection to bypass nuance and force every divergent detail into our own quest for unification. Right? We take prisoner all things for Christ, every thought for Christ. What happens if we look at that psychologically? The monotheism of history becomes a monotheism of psychology now. And all of our divergent parts are glossed over, repressed, pushed away, 
and, and our quest for wholeness, we kind of like shove it all off. Now, as Lopez Pedraza points out, we have our ancestral lineage on both sides of the line. We not only condemn and pillage for our beliefs in the name of unified power, but we also see that we are that which is condemned and pillaged because we are on both sides of the line. And what I think Lopez Pedraza is trying to point out is that even if that conflict is unconscious, we still suffer. We're still anxious because of it. Now, the anxiety itself is a reminder of what does not fit, of what's been forced into exile. Symptoms remind us of the autonomy of the complexes. They refuse to submit to the ego's view of a unified person. Now this, to my mind, is the real genius thing that depth psychology has to offer the rest of the psychological disciplines as well as, I think, the religious disciplines. One of the things that Jung is kind of famous for saying is that the gods have become diseases. And the point that I'm making here is when we have these symptoms, when things pop up, when, we are, when our plans are thwarted, it's an opportunity to recognize that there is more to us than just what we want. And it's so easy for us to kind of bull rush over that and to then want to medicate the symptom or get rid of the symptom in some way. And when we do that, the, the point that depth psychology is making is that we're not recognizing the multiplicity in the psyche and it's never going to go away. We can, put a we can erect a cross on an old God's temple but the animistic spirits underneath might be growing resentful and angry. I think it's Hillman talking about our culture's lack of connection with the instincts as Pan, the old nature god, who later becomes the devil as stomping his hooved feet below the floorboards and our fear that he won't go away. That's one of the ways to think about our symptoms is that the things that have been repressed and buried that didn't fit, that don't fit the ego's agenda or society's agenda, they don't really go away. And so I think one of the things that depth psychology does is it offers a, a way to relativize the ego's position by recognizing the multiplicity in the psyche. And sometimes, most of the time actually, because we're in a monotheistic culture, that, mono, that multiplicity is actually unconscious and we suffer nonetheless. Now, Constantine's dream is the root metaphor for this conflict because not only is it here that Abrahamic monotheism entered the stream of Western consciousness in an official way, but it's also the moment that Christianity teamed up with worldly power. He whose kingdom was not of this world, quoting John 18.36, suddenly became the champion of the empire. Here we see the seduction of the monotheistic side of our nature and its coherence and its single-minded focus. When such focus teams up with ambition, it offers us the promise of power. That power, in turn, extends to every facet of human life as it begins to influence our basic psychological position. Monotheism has pervaded in extenso the world in which we live, our religious belief, our way of life, the ideas of our culture, our politics, the sciences, and last but not least, the study of psychology. That's a Lopez Pedrazo quote. Now for this reason, the monotheistic side of ourselves is not only the sun which burns the brightest, but is simultaneously the light which casts the largest shadow. 
See, it's seductive, this unified eye, this unified power principle. It's very seductive. Through the lens of depth psychology, we're left to ask, what aren't we seeing? In all of our movement toward power and conquest, what is left behind? Who is the pagan? And where have they gone? Now, the word pagan itself, it's kind of carried different meanings at different times, but most notably, it refers to conservative holdouts. It's so funny that they were the conservatives, right? Because as Lopez Pedraza says, like the most, the, the lineage most properly belonging to us in the West is this pagan or what we call polytheism. And so at this point, when Rome is becoming Catholic and is ruining all of the pagan temples and purifying them, destroying them, all these things, there's these conservative holdouts and they refuse conversion, even though they're like, okay, Constantine had this dream, but these are still my gods. Now, because Rome had been Christianized, these pagans were often from rural environments, living in the country and forest outside of the city. Because remember, Rome is this vast kind of sprawling empire. So Rome becomes Catholic and kind of reinforce or forces it in all of the cities. But then you have all of these kind of rural places that are in the forest and in the hills and in the mountains, right? And these, a lot of these people kind of refuse to become Christians. Now, I think in working with the cultural anxiety in ourselves, we can begin by addressing the parts of ourselves that have been least accepted by the prevailing values and consciousness in which we live and were raised. That's where the pagan is. That's the case I'm making anyway. What or who in us have been pushed into the margins? The absolutism of monotheism often damns to hell what does not fit, and thus it can take much work to find these parts of ourselves. Right? We're going to read this psychologically. For they are living in torment, far below the surface of consciousness. So the monotheistic side of our, ourselves kind of damns the polytheistic side to hell, and as a result, these parts are deep. They're buried but they're in torment. Prior to its use as a designation for non-Christians, the term pagan is more likely derived from the use of paganus in Roman military jargon for civilian incompetent soldier, which Christians, Tertullian, one of the, one of the church fathers, picked up with the military imagery of the early church. So we see from the beginning that it also carried this kind of derogatory sense to it, this term pagan, meant to marginalize and belittle those who refused Christianization. Basically, they refused conversion. So they took a term that was there, kind of used for like incompetent soldier. It was kind of a military term. And they applied it to these people, right? So there's just this kind of immediate devaluing of the, of the pagan. Now, this is to say that the pagan in us the parts that recognize an inherent multiplicity and deviation from the accepted consciousness of the time likely carries immense shame about that fact, which the Christian in us continues to perpetuate. Lopez Pedraza seems to work this shame out in terms of guilt. Now, in my own work, I distinguish between the two by defining guilt as the feeling we get when we betray ourselves and our own values, and shame as what happens when we fail to live up to the external values projected upon us. I've just personally really found this distinguishment, and I'm sure many of you heard me talk about it, between guilt and shame to be really important. And this is why I think in many Christian practices, shame is almost elevated to a virtue, and it's used as a tool for motivating repentance, right? 
so guilt, I didn't live up to my, my own internal constitution and who I know I'm here to be and who I want to be. And shame, I didn't, live up to, I didn't live up to external values that have been projected on me. The church tells me I need to be this way. Society tells me I need to be this way. I'm not that way, and I feel shame. And, and this is why I think, again, we see that shame is almost elevated to a virtue. Now, if we're to look at the rhetoric of monotheism in order to spot it in our own psyche, like what's the language of it, then we find this conflict perpetuated every time self-loathing or self-hatred are used as methods for motivating right action. So every time we find we use like self-loathing, we try to hate ourselves into our ambition and into our goals. That's the Christian trying to dominate these other parts that don't fit into those goals. That don't, rather than get to know them, rather than create a harmonious relationship, that's how this split, this conflict actually shows up. Now, while Lopez Pedraza sees no redeeming quality in guilt, I do. I think as it's telling you sometimes exactly where you stepped away from yourself. Guilt can present us then with an opportunity to turn around, a metanoia personified as a Greek goddess who travels always with Kairos, opportunity. I feel guilt, for example, when I reject the pagan in me and I step away from my own internal constitution. In truly feeling into this self-betrayal, I'm then afforded the opportunity to turn around and go in a new direction. I feel shame, however, when I break a commandment or I betray the values that came from my Judeo-Christian upbringing and were interjected along the way. Right? It's not just that we're raised this way, it's that we actually interject those values. We take them in and they become part of our operating system. Now, Freud worked this introjection of external values out as the superego. That's essentially what the superego is. But the thing to think about is just because they've been introjected and you've been raised in them and you've taken them onto yourself, they're no less a foreign body. That's that idea of corpus alienum that I was talking about earlier. Now, what's more is by f distinguishing the difference, what's yours and what's not yours, what's guilt and what's shame, it's a way of differentiating and figuring out what does your soul, who does your soul actually want to be while it's here. That's got to be distinguished. Now, I've often seen that guilt is such an unpleasant feeling that we try to avoid it. And I'm saying, no, I, I'd say feel it, like feel it deeply, because if you feel it deeply, that's that metanoia. That's the opportunity to go in a new direction because it's unbearable to step away from yourself. Unless, of course, you don't feel it. You just distract yourself or get busy, that kind of a thing. So, so it's a way of differentiating. Who am I? Who am I here to be? <clears throat> now, since Judeo-Christian monotheism is so narrow in its exclusivity and so wide in what it rejects, the word pagan over time began to characterize anyone whose religion fell outside of the accept, accepted dogma of the church. It's even been superimposed into Jesus' mouth in the book of Matthew, according to some translations of the New Testament. So the original word Gentile, meaning non-Jewish person, apparently didn't carry enough weight for these translators, like the King James Version. So they, they put the word pagan in Jesus' mouth, even though it's, it's not in the Greek anywhere. And that's a way of devaluing anybody who falls outside of this religious belief. Now, likewise, we might also see the word pagan as casting a wide net for us personally, catching every aspect of ourselves that refuses certainty, literalism, or dogma. See, I'm kind of wanting to reclaim this term. 
Uh, and that that's happening. I mean, that happens a lot. But differentiating the images and what's been rejected, as archetypal psychology seeks to do, is a way of showing interest and thus learning to relate to these parts in ourselves. And I think this might be why James Hillman often emphasizes interest over hope. Hope comes from the rhetoric of monotheism, that there's an abstract good, if only we can wait out this earthly torment, right? That's a kind of monotheistic way of thinking about the world. Yet in the pagan world, the gods are decidedly of this world, and thus interest helps us differentiate and address what is going on in the present moment. And so I'm kind of offering a commentary there on just Hillman's idea. He often kind of like poo-poo's hope and he's like, I think it's much more valuable to be interested. Like follow your interest. Where is that going? And you might see that the, this hope for this abstracted good isn't as necessary as you think it might be. So just kind of making a comment on that. Now, Lopez Pedraza points out another nuance which makes this particular type of monotheism so pervasive and all-encompassing psychological identification. He says, it seems the conception of the one all-powerful, imageless God in whom the believer has faith provokes this kind of psychological identification. And because the Bible provokes identification, it is difficult to talk or write about it psychologically. This is a very subtle and nuanced point that I have seen show up often. And that this, the Bible provokes a kind of identification. All of a sudden, the pastor becomes the arbiter of right and wrong. They become the judge. It happens so unconsciously and so easily. You know, or maybe there's part of you that kind of recoils at even the idea of having this conversation. And you can feel in that the difficulty of looking at it psychologically. It's as if there is something in the way the book is written that tilts its adherence toward fundamentalism and intolerance by monopolizing the psyche through identification with the one and the only. When this is the case, we can end up with an ego psychology, that is, a psychology that diminishes soul by recognizing only the ego, right? only my preference, only what I want, as a prime mover in my life. Just as the Christian recognizes only one God revealed in the Bible. As this narrowing continues, it becomes only the canonical version of the Bible as a source of legitimate wisdom. And over time, there's only one hermeneutical approach for understanding that wisdom. Now here, things begin to grow literal very quickly. That's kind of where we're at in the world. It's like, it starts with just one God, but then it becomes one, one book, right? It, so like all of the books of the Bible that get put together, the Apocrypha books, for example, that are in Catholicism, aren't accepted in, in the current Protestant way of looking at the Bible. So we end up in this place where it just keeps growing more and more narrow, and what it rejects gets wider and wider. There's only one book, and then there's only one way of reading the book, which is what I was indoctrinated in seminary. There's only one hermeneutical approach. Now, when this system of thought is taken into the psyche, the entire pantheon, along with the fates, graces, and daimons, are collapsed behind a single power principle principle, the individual I. It is I that makes it happen or not. I am the captain of my soul. Ego psychology, this is a Hillman quote, ego psychology results from being trapped by the ego into its perspective. The other characters on the stage are merely characteristics, projections of mine. Only I am literally real. And you can see in this our present psychology. All of the inner figures, the gods, are now just symptoms and delusions to get rid of. Now, technically, 
one cannot really speak of psychology without coming up against this cultural conflict. For the word itself speaks of the study of soul, psyche, its functioning in its spontaneous order, the logos of psyche. In Abrahamic monotheism, the logos itself, that is to say order itself, takes center stage. So that at best, psyche is forced into its service, into its service. So it's no longer about what psyche wants, what the soul wants. It's about what the logo says. And at worst, the psyche disappears altogether. And you see this a lot in what I would call logocentricism, but theology today. The psyche, the soul, doesn't have a reality of its own. It only gets its value from the logos. And so the soul has to live up to the logos rather than whatever wants to come forward in the soul being acceptable. For the recognition of psyche is also the relativization of the logos. See, this is something we got to understand. Like psychology is speaking of the spontaneous order of the soul. It's got its own order. But then when we take something like the Ten Commandments, for example, we place, not, this isn't saying that they're bad, this is just what happens. We take an external order and we project it onto the soul. And everything that doesn't fit gets cast outside. And this is really important because I think this does come from our monotheistic lineage, so to speak, is that the soul has its own spontaneous order. It knows what it wants. And if the ego is designed to serve the soul, then it's an act of differentiating and figuring out what the soul wants to be. But when an external order is projected on top of it, sometimes I think we suffer. Like sometimes the problem might be the problem. And sometimes it might be that the soul just doesn't want a straitjacket. It seems we cannot have any true conception of psyche, and thus no true psychology, until the soul is granted an irreducible reality of its own. And this is why I think it can be so important to understand this conflict psychologically, because we use the word soul, we talk about soul food, but I think the soul in a lot of ways finds itself in the back seat to our preferences, our desires for what we want for our lives, or to live up to our culture in some way. If psychology wants to reflect faithfully the soul's actual diversity, then it may not beg the question from the beginning by insisting with monotheistic prejudgment upon unit, unity of personality. The idea of unity is, after all, only one of many archetypal perspectives. And that's a quote by James Hillman. Now Hillman has this idea that our ideas, our archetypes, they're not just what we see, but it is by these ideas that we see. And he's saying if monotheism, if you're looking through the lens of monotheism, you might forget that that's just one way of being in the world, right? That that's only one way. And so another thing that Hillman points out that's very important to know here is that if you don't have very many ideas to look through, to see the world by, then the chances of you becoming tyrannized and dominated by a single perspective are increasingly more likely. Because it's only when you see that that's only one way of being in the world, and that there are other gods, other archetypes to look through, that the one you've been given actually gets relativized. Doesn't, be, doesn't have the dominating power it used to have. So you see that the monotheistic side of ourselves actually relies on you not having other ideas. And this is what I meant earlier when I said you don't have to be Christian to be living the Christian myth, to still treat yourself as if there's only one way to be, and to beat yourself up when you're not that way. Archetypal psychology does not redeem the pagan by insisting that we travel backwards through time by taking up pagan religious practice, by the way. 
this reconnection, revival, rebirth we are talking about is more like an actual reinterpretation and regaining of memory than a movement backwards. In fact, Hillman himself is quite opposed to that idea for fear that the monotheistic side of our nature will remain unconscious. He has this great quote where he says, one cannot step out and start worshiping the moon without 2,500 years of Judeo-Christian values grabbing at you. So Hillman is just saying, you know, just rejecting monotheism isn't going to help solve this conflict in you. You actually have to recover the perspective. So the answer is to think about it psychologically. So in archetypal psychology, he has four pillars, and I didn't, I didn't have enough time in the paper, so I, they all kind of play a role in this regaining of this cultural memory. But I think the most vital one for our purposes is pillar three, what he calls psychologizing or seeing through. It is here that one begins to loosen their grip on the monotheistic perspective that has unconsciously rejected all others. Seeing through, right, this is the idea of seeing through the way that you're seeing into realizing it is only a single idea. Seeing through moves one from the literal to the metaphorical perspective by asserting that ideas are not only what we see, but it is through them that we see. This places a premium on the collection of ideas as each one simultaneously provides a new perspective or insight while also relativizing the ego's current perspective. Moreover, the person without many ideas by which to see becomes increasingly more susceptible to the tyranny of any single idea. Abrahamic monotheism works not only by positing one idea, but by taking all of the rest of them away, banishing them, labeling them pejoratively, and assigning the worst conceivable punishment to those who continue to perpetuate them, eternal damnation. So you see the way that this part of ourselves, this monotheistic part of ourselves, begins to tyrannize the other parts, right? Because the other parts aren't acceptable. As we endeavor to create projects of religious syncretism that can speak to this divide in ourselves, the idea of seeing through becomes paramount. Pillman has this whole thing, and this is kind of, I'm making a comment on this here, it's kind of an aside, but he has this whole thing where he doesn't want to go east, and what I mean by that is like go into the Eastern religions, um, because part of that is, as he said, like you you'll be unconscious of your of your Abrahamic formation in the psyche, and so you'll still have the shadow of the Christian, but you just won't know about it, and you'll project it onto the East. And I think that's good to be cognizant of, but it doesn't. I don't think need to stop us. Anyway, I'm just kind of taking a jab at Hillman here. Despite quoting the Buddha in support of his ideas, Hillman makes it a point to say that he is not going east. Yet, if the goal is to collect ideas, and the more ideas we have, the more ways the soul can catch a glimpse of itself, then why should an entire hemisphere and their associated ideas be discarded? And here's why, particularly, I want to make a case for why just having an awareness or considering Eastern philosophies can be so helpful for working with this divide in ourselves. First of all, can we ever know anything about our ideas if we do not stand outside of them completely to gain a new reference point? So if in the West, the Greek tradition is our lineage and the Abrahamic traditions are our heritage, it is by going East that we are forced out of our given position. The move into Eastern thought creates a third point, where one can stand outside of the oscillating anxiety and sophisticate their view of things. The third pole creates a dynamism, if nothing else. 
Archetypal psychology shackles itself by asserting the value of variety and then itself abandoning a variety of gods and myths. So basically, you know, what I've, I'm kind of making a commentary at this point on my own work, just because I've realized, oh, in contemplating other ways that people have dealt with this polytheistic, monotheistic split in themselves, it starts to sophisticate my understanding because there are very, very sophisticated ways of thinking about it. Like Tantra, for example, is a very sophisticated way of looking at the world and how the one becomes the many, right? But in the West, that happened through war. It didn't happen through sophistication. And so I, I'm kind of making the point that we have to explore. We have to go find new ways, new gods, new myths, not to believe in them. That's a monotheistic way of seeing it. That's a, that's a kind of Christian way of seeing it. But to contemplate them, to see what that would mean, to sophisticate our understanding. Because by bringing in new ideas from new parts of the world, it might be possible to find a new position in the psyche where conflict then becomes complementary. So that after awareness of the conflict, we might move into a position that seeks its resolution. For this, the Eastern paths of yoga present an invaluable image. Each of the main paths of yoga are such in order to facilitate spiritual growth for many different psychological dispositions. In yoga, it is self-evident that not everybody would want, need, or benefit from the same path. Furthermore, there's a recognition of the many living in concert with the one, such as we found in our earlier exposition of Neoplatonism. So from the earliest times, Hinduism has proclaimed one God while accommodating worship of him or her, for to millions, God is the Divine Mother, in many different names. Truth is one, says the Rig Veda. Now, in short, Hindu systems of thought provide ways of seeing where the two were never engaged in battle, never thought themselves opposites. There we find elaborately sophisticated worldviews where many deities are nested in a single source, each coexisting and reciprocally engaged. So that's one way of working with this conflict. Now, whether we decide to go East or not is kind of a matter of personal preference. But in the end, I do posit that simply having an awareness of one's own cultural anxiety is ultimately the key to working with it. Like, we've got to know that this is happening if we're going to work with it. We've got to know the way that our desire for power and unity actually banishes the parts of ourselves that are more multiple, that have different agendas and different ideas. I suggest that this idea of cultural anxiety, if accepted, can become a hermeneutic in its own right a lens through which other works can be read. So what I'm saying is we can read some of the great works of the 19th and 20th century, for example, as if they were projects of religious syncretism, confessions about how the pagan monotheistic divide has been personally addressed in each author. Because I think if we read it this way, it helps ease the tension in oneself. So here's what I mean. Here's what I think this might look like. We accept that there is this conflict that has taken place in our history, and because it's taken place in our history, it takes place in us still. Then if you read, for example, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance, or Martin Heidegger's essay on being in time, or Friedrich Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, or Carl Jung's Mysterium Conjunctionis, you can see that what these great authors are doing are actually trying to work with that split in themselves. And so they bring these disparate ways, these disparate thought processes from, from around the world together in what's called a project of religious syncretism. 
So that's a way that we can deal with this split. Now, each of these address the conflict in a way that is slightly different than the other. Emerson, for example, he finds solace in transcendentalism, which is a kind of combination of Western monotheism, Eastern thought, and nature mysticism. Heidegger, he depersonalizes God by working with capital B, being itself, finding a home for his ideas in the pre-Socratics. So he goes back to the pre-Socratics. Nietzsche seeks to show the futility in the monotheistic side, and thus the metaphysical component of the Western psyche. So Nietzsche says, you know, he's the famous God is dead. Now, curiously, the move into metaphysics and into abstraction seems characteristic of monotheism. For the world in front of us is very clearly multiple and many. So what I'm saying is, this pagan way of being in the world, it's actually the most natural way of being in the world. You actually have to do a bit of mental gymnastics to start finding coherent principles, which is why even when monotheism starts to develop organically in ancient Greece, for example, it takes time. It takes time for, that to, for this like cohering concept to develop. And finally, as Lopez Pedraza himself points out, Jung found in alchemy a synthesis for working with the conflict in himself. And, and this is also where I think we look back at the Renaissance. You know, in the Renaissance, you have these paintings that bring Christian figures and pagan figures uh, into conversation. They're in the same painting. Right? These, are pro these are ways of working with this divide that has happened in our history. Reading each of these works and many more as if they were addressing this conflict can give us new ideas to see by, new and creative ways of addressing the divide that began the moment that Constantine painted a cross on his shield, hid behind it, and drove his spear through the heart of the enemy. And I think, you know, that's how the paper ends. And I ended in kind of a dramatic way on purpose like that, because that's kind of how I write. But I think that the most important thing to consider here is that through a monotheistic perspective, if we look at that psychologically, it doesn't have to be considered the Christian way or the Jewish way or the Muslim way of seeing. It's the fact that there is only one way of seeing, only one way of being. And this is why, for some reason, it seems that the Abrahamic religions tilt toward fundamentalism, because that's what fundamentalism is. There's only one way. There's only one way to be. And so at the end of the day, I think that part of, obviously, this is part of the project of A Thousand Names for God, but just that we collect more ideas, because as we do, we relativize the ideas we have. And perhaps in that, we are less likely to develop some kind of a neuroses for, or, or beat ourselves up for being in a way that falls outside of whatever our monotheistic ideas say that we need to be. It's when it becomes a psychology of monotheism that we actually start to suffer. And as I said earlier, I think one of the ways that that can be particularly difficult is when something in the soul is trying to emerge and that doesn't correspond without, with the one way that we've decided it's, it's acceptable to be here. Because then we're at an inner war. And that's part of what this conflict is, that this war that took place is actually still taking place inside of us. And it's often taking place unconscious because it's so difficult to see our worldview 
until we have new ideas, until we can stand outside of it. And until then, we just consider it the way things actually are. And it's only by collecting more ideas that we begin to, again, relativize the ideas we, ha we have. It's, so it's, it's multiple ideas, multiple worldviews, philosophies, ways of seeing the world that can set us free from the tyranny of literalism and monotheistic psychology. When I no longer fear the unknown Cause I know what I am here for I keep on trodden on my own path Keep on learning from my present and past, yeah When I no longer need validation Cause my story is long and I'm patient I know that I have lessons to learn Keep my eyes open each step I earn, yeah No need for me to feel alone Cause I got a place that I call home Every single road travel, every single new place I come back home, they accept me with grace yeah. When I know that I was meant to be here And I know that I was born into fear But I will stand tall in the lion's den Cause I know in my heart I am one of them That there lies in the facets of everything that we see that are telling us to be scared when all we ever are is free. I'm letting go of the things that don't serve me no more. Cause I am holy and sacred and righteous and true. And I deserve to be here and so do you. Said I deserve to be here. But I'm in a constant transition, constantly changing vision Story never certain, there is always a revision to be made When I think about the demons I have slayed I am not afraid of confrontation in vain To the people that seek evil, not as peaceful as I look What a warrior at heart, so precaution must be took What I'm trying to give in to the lessons that will soften my ways And means of changing, cause I talk to spirit often Tell me to stay sharp, tell me to stay present Tell me to ignore the fools and focus on a sin well, Said I will stop my ego and I will remain strong I will make mistakes and I will often be wrong When I'm perfectly imperfect and I'm only here to learn And all the evil on the path gets burned I said I'm perfectly imperfect and I'm only here to learn And all the evil on the path gets burned But there lies in the facets of everything that we see That are telling us to be scared When all we ever are is free I'm letting go of the things that don't serve me no more Cause I am holy and sacred and righteous and true And I deserve to be here and so do you Always come from the outside Try not to let it in where I reside Well this is my heart, my home, my choice My love, my life, my path, my voice yeah. But I feel my heart grow with each step Stand firm in where the path goes next Well I know that where it goes is where I need to be The more lessons rain down, more blessings I see yeah. Sit there lies in the facets of everything that we see that are telling us to be scared 
when all we ever are is free I'm letting go of the things that don't serve me no more Cause I am holy and sacred and righteous and true And I deserve to be here and so do 